Are we ready to study God's Word and maybe receive a little counsel from it this morning? Amen. Get your Bibles. And we have endeavored to uh, perhaps read some passages to you that perhaps are not traditionally used as Christmas verses. Whenever the Christmas season rolls around, I always say to myself, what more can be said about a story as familiar as the Christmas story? And uh, so we endeavor to uh, be creative and uh, to find maybe new things that God would like to share with his people with regards to this. And so uh, we did this Home Alone series, and this will be the last installment of Home Alone, Uh, I think a a relatively familiar, now contemporary Christmas story about relationships. So we've been doing that. We've been talking about relationship, and where do you end on an endless topic? Have mercy, relationships, understanding what do we do with our relationships. And so this morning, I'm going to end with what I've entitled Reconciliation. That really is a great Christmas word, reconciliation. I have never explored it before. I've never taught on it before, per se, but I want to just spend a few moments on it this morning. If you have your Bibles, open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and as you're finding 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which we will read just a couple verses here in just a moment, I want to show you the last clip from our Home Alone series. As you know, it's a story about really not only the dysfunctional family of Kevin, who is uh, the main character, and how they left him at home over Christmas vacation accidentally, and then he meets an older gentleman at church, which we shared with you last week, whom he too has a dysfunctional story to tell. But the interesting thing, as it is, it seems, with all Hollywood movies, when you come to the end of the movie, there's always a happy ending. And so, uh, guys, if you're prepared, watch the screen overhead, Home Alone. Kevin! Kevin! Where's everybody else? Oh, baby, they couldn't come. They wanted to so much. No, I didn't fall asleep in that. You did, You 
It's pretty cool that you even burned the place down. <laughs> Thanks, Buzz. Wait a minute. How did you guys get home? Oh, he took the morning flight, remember? The one you didn't want to wait for? Oh, no. Merry oh, 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 thank Merry you. Christmas. Merry Christmas. Okay. Well, someone has to find an open store. We don't even have milk here. I went shopping yesterday. You shopping? I got to milk, eggs, and fabric softener. What? No kidding. What a funny guy. What else did you do while we were away? Just hung around. You guys going to step upstairs? He went shopping? Yeah, go. He doesn't know how to tie his shoe. He's going shopping? Honey, what's this? Reconciliation, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And the point at the end of the movie, Home Alone, in fact, we mentioned it in our own household, and I suspect it's happened in some of yours. We've said, hey, we've got we to gotta watch the whole movie now. We've seen so many clips of it that we want to watch the whole movie. But the point of the movie is that at the end of it, everyone reconciles. That's why we like feel-good movies. It has a happy ending. But relationships don't always end happy because reconciliation isn't as easy as a movie moment. You know, I think for both Trace and myself, we lived for years sort of in this fantasy that whenever there is a relational bump, whether it's with a family, a friend, a situation, whenever you're in a relational bump, um, you know, you always want to believe that somehow, some way, there's going to be this grand movie moment. And the people are going to get together, you're going to see them, something mysterious is going to happen, love is in the air, everybody is suddenly soft and tender, they're going to begin to cry. Everyone will say, I was wrong. How could I have been so blind? There's some music that's playing in the background somewhere. And, and you're just going to have this incredible Hollywood movie moment. Can I just say, 
It just doesn't work that way ever. And, and so to reconcile is something that really we need to understand that, yes, it needs to happen. Yes, it can happen. Yes, God wants it to happen. But we need to understand how it happens. Second Corinthians 5, I want to read to you just a couple verses here. Second Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 18, it says this. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. I want to stop there for just a moment because obviously through Christ, uh, God was wanting us to be related to him again. And, and Paul says in a very succinct way, he says Jesus came in order that we could find relationship with God again through him. And because we can be reconciled to God, now we have been given a ministry of reconciliation. I believe that both entails helping people, other people, become reconciled to God, as well as becoming reconciled one to another. For he goes on to say that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, but has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And so I personally believe uh, that many, many people do not understand what reconciliation is and the basis of that reconciliation. In fact, I think many people confuse the terms and think that they're synonymous, the words forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, both of these words and concepts are important, but I believe it would be just in the heart of God, and I believe it's the Holy Spirit prompted me to do this, that we need to distinguish these concepts just a little bit this morning in order that you can understand uh, how reconciliation takes place. The Bible says clearly, at least to me, that we're commanded to forgive everyone. I'll say that again. You're commanded to forgive everyone. It says, forgive one another even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. The greatest example of forgiveness was Jesus on the cross as they're, as they're crucifying the very people who are crucifying him. He, he looses forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so I believe no matter what, that is a Christian imperative that we received from the divine nature that was imparted into us when we opened up our heart to Jesus Christ, when we were saved, that we were to forgive everyone. Yes, that includes enemies. That includes dysfunctional people. It includes all the odd people in your life there is no there is no list or person on the list that escapes it we forgive because christ forgave us in fact the greek words it just out of you know if you're interested in these things a literally means to release from an obligation i'm going to come back to that a little bit later to release from an obligation, which literally means this, that, that if they've done something, which if you're needing to forgive somebody, obviously they did something to you. Forgiveness means you're releasing them from an observation. The other word that's oftentimes used for forgiveness is the word charismai. In fact, the word charis actually is the word we get grace from or gift from, um, but it probably is best understood in this form, meaning to grant somebody a favor. Just to give them a, you're just, you're just granting them a favor. 
you're forgiving them. It may not be what they deserve. It may not be what you would like to do, but you're just granting them a favor and, and, and you've forgiven them. Now, that's forgiveness. Keep that sort of here on the side and let's talk a little bit about reconciliation. Reconciliation is a little bit different because forgiveness is automatic. I'm just here to tell you, I know it's hard. We talked about it last week, how you probably have a four-day window with which you can work through all your feelings and then you just need to get over it or, or deal with it. But reconciliation is not an automatic deal. Forgiveness is something we are commanded to do. Reconciliation is not an automatic deal. It's not even an automatic deal with God. You understand that that while God looks at the world and He loves the world, He's not reconciling Himself to the world until the world comes to terms with His Son. You understand that? So there is a condition even upon God being reconciled with us. It's not automatic. There's a condition that's placed on it, and that is we have to come to terms with Jesus Christ. So reconciliation is not automatic, and I believe especially when it comes to human relationships, there's a process to it. Now, the word in the original language is the word katalasso. It'll come several different ways in that form. But basically it means to reestablish, to make things right, or to change. Leave that up there for just a moment. To reestablish, which means that at one time there was something established. To make things right. So in other words, we're going to establish again, what was once established, but make it right, and then to change. In order for that to happen, something has to change. Are you following me? So in the very definition of reconciliation, there's something here that gives us a condition. Now it's fascinating as I started to think about this in the scripture, because as you begin to look at even Jesus and how he interacted with people, is it not interesting that Jesus ultimately reconciled with Peter? He ultimately reconciled even with Thomas, who doubted this whole thing, but yet he never reconciled with Judas. Think about that for just a minute. So Jesus did not reconcile with everyone despite having forgiven everyone. The Bible also records that Paul reconciled with John Mark. For those of you that may not know this story, uh, <clears throat> Barnabas had a young companion, John Mark. Apparently there was this fuss that took place between John, Mark, and Paul. Paul was aggravated with him, actually wanted just to sort of lop him off in in the relationship and the ministry. Barnabas uh, grabbed him and saw some worth in John, Mark, and kept on a relationship there. Paul went a different way. John, Mark, and Barnabas went another way. But we read through the scripture, eventually Paul will write, hey, when you come, bring John, Mark with you because he's profitable for ministry. So Somewhere in that equation, Paul and John Mark reconciled their relationship one with another. However, having said that, there were several people that Paul never reconciled with. Three of those being Alexander and Hymenaeus. He said, Alexander the coppersmith uh, did me much harm. Hymenaeus was another one that he would not reconcile with. And then Demas, the scripture would later say, having been a companion with Paul, Paul would later write, having loved this present world, has left me. And so we see even in the life of the great apostle Paul that there were some people he reconciles with and others for whatever reason, at least at this point, we aren't quite sure why. Now, were there attempts at reconciliation? I can at least infer infer that probably there were. But 
Just because you make an attempt at reconciliation doesn't mean that reconciliation always takes place. And this is really, really important. Because here's a key. Relationships are important to God. I want you to hear this. Relationships are important to God, but not every relationship is necessarily a God relationship. I'll say that again. Relationships are important to God, but not every relationship is necessarily a God relationship. Let me just give you some examples. For instance, let's say you go buy a car from an unscrupulous car dealer. Now granted, the car dealer can be forgiven because he sold you a lemon. But just because you forgave him does not automatically mean you should buy another car from him. Are you following me? That's why it works even within our marriage relationships. There's an unfaithful spouse. Some of you have experienced the wounding and and the hurtfulness of having a spouse. And this runs two directions. Men have have felt the woundedness of, of a woman that has that has abandoned them or left them. And, and women oftentimes experience the exact same thing as men go off and, and, and do crazy stuff. And you, listen to me, you must forgive. I, I'm, I'm just telling it straight up. You are commanded to forgive. But that does not mean that you necessarily reconcile. There are things that have to be evaluated there. A pedophile has to be forgiven. Now I realize I'm 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 going to I'm really digging around here. A pedophile has to be forgiven. But I'll tell you this, they'll never be alone with another child. Are you following what I'm saying? See, forgiveness oftentimes isn't so much for them as much as it is for you. I want to remind you of that. And just because there's forgiveness doesn't mean everything can be reconciled. You can forgive a rapist, but the rapist still goes to jail. You can forgive your sexual abuser, but they, they aren't to be your best friend. Are you following me? You see, we fully and freely forgive people, but reconciliation involves the reestablishment of trust. And that, dear people, is not always easy, it's not always automatic, and sometimes it's not even advisable. Tracy and I, interestingly, uh, we have some similar stories uh, concerning our high school years. Um, She had a boyfriend uh, whose first name was Jeff. I had a girlfriend whose first name was Sylvia. And, uh, you know, we've, we've thought about this now after... 30 years of marriage and, and, and 31 years, because we, we dated well over a year, that those two people should have found each other. That's what we think should happen. Because what would happen, and it's an exact same story, it's just one was with a, a, a girl and one was with the boy, and that is that you were in this sort of high school relationship, and everybody thinks when they're in high school they found the one. God just assure you, probably not. I'm not saying... People don't marry their high school sweethearts. It does happen, but oftentimes they aren't the one. And uh, I remember thinking this is the one, and, and Trace will tell you the story. She probably thought this was the one, and, and you'd be in this relationship. And then all of a sudden, somewhere in this high school relationship, there would be some better deal that would come along. And her Jeff would run to the better deal 
girl. And this Sylvia would run to the better deal guy. And we would be kicked to the curb. Yeah, more than once. Yeah, I'm getting there. And what would happen is, is that after a while they would find out, as everyone does, that the better deal sometimes isn't a better deal. And so once they find out it's not a better deal, they'd want to come back, you, you know, you'd forgive, and then you'd begin to go out again, and the story would then cycle several times. Now, listen, it cycles several times, and the question is, how many times do you cycle before you get your cycling? Because the deal is you can forgive. You could forgive thousands of times. In fact, it was said of Jesus, how many times should I forgive? What did he say? Seventy times what? You you did just to keep on forgiving. But hear me now, you can forgive ad infinitum. But there comes a time in the relationship you may have to say, no more. No more. Why? 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 Forgiveness should mean reconciliation why it's because trust is blown and once you lose trust well that's hard to recover so so pastor are you saying that reconciliation is impossible no i didn't say it was impossible i said there's just more to it than just saying i'm sorry how does this take place well let's talk about this how does reconciliation take place One of the greatest myths, I think, of Christianity and following Jesus is that when you meet Jesus, he makes everything easy. Eh. Wrong answer. I will agree that things are easier with him than without him, but not everything we must do to be whole is going to be easy. To be reconciled will take courage. It will take eclipsing fears. It'll be risking your feelings. To reconcile means that you very much could be potentially disappointed and rejected. Because this is a two-way street. And not everyone wants to walk down that street. Everybody would be reconciled with anybody if they didn't have to do anything. If you are ever forced to really reconcile, I can assure you, That you will do everything in your power in the future to maintain the relationship as good as possible. Because once you go through reconciliation processes according to the scripture, you're going to say to yourself, I don't ever want to get in this mess again. So I'm going to share with you right now at least what I've come to understand as the steps to reconciliation. Does that surprise you? Seven steps. That's just me. I see life in steps. Seven steps. Of true reconciliation. All right, we're going to read just a couple things. I'm going to help you, hopefully, in your marriages. I'm going to help you in your friendships. I'm going to help you just in your interaction, perhaps, with coworkers and and neighbors. And and we're just going to work through this and help you understand, even as we get to the end, and maybe help you understand that there are some relationships that don't need to be reconciled. Number one, to reconcile, you have to recognize that there's a problem. Now, that would appear to be obvious, wouldn't it? But this is where you identify, really, who you're dealing with. Because when you're, when you're entering into reconciliation, there has to be a recognition that there is a problem. And if somebody in that reconciliation process doesn't see that there's a problem, then you see, we got a problem. How can you reconcile, even if it's an innocent party, 
How can you reconcile if someone at least doesn't understand there's a problem here? Now, there are just several verses. I'm going to explain to you why these verses were so important to me. But guys, if you're ready, Proverbs 14, 7, it says, Go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. Next verse. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. Verse 9. Fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is favor. I want to stop there for just a minute and explain a couple of things here. Basically, the reason a lot of reconciliation doesn't take place is because sometimes who we, who we had as a friend or who we had as a co-worker or who we had in some form of relational connection, and we hate to admit it and you hate to say it, and, and, and I'm not, don't come up to me and say, you know, Jesus said call no man fool. I know Jesus said call no man fool. He also said it in the context that you weren't to do it when you were unrighteously angry. And I think that was the context because Jesus would violate his own words just a few chapters later when he'd call a whole bunch of people fool. I'm not mad. But it's just the truth. Some people are fools. They just, they're fools. And those verses basically say a fool mocks at sin. If, if, there's, if there's alienation, which... Which if salvation is reconciliation, or at least a part of it, then we'd have to assume sin at its irreducible residue being self-consumption or selfishness, alienating ourselves from God and one another. And if you can't recognize that, and, and you diminish it, or you say there's no reason for it, and you just refuse to deal with it, the Bible says you are a fool. In fact, the very man that was building bigger barns so that he could throw all his wealth in it and then said, soul, take thy knees, God himself looked at him and said, thou fool. Your soul's required of you this night. So you've got to understand that whether people are legitimately fools or whether they're just acting foolishly, the truth of the matter is, it says, sometimes you've got to walk away from those. Now go to the next Proverbs passage here, Proverbs 18.2. It says, a fool has no delight in understanding, but just in expressing his own heart. Now, again, everybody has feelings, and, and those feelings ought to be, you know, they ought to be at least heard. But, but, you know, what you feel and what is real could be two different things. Now, go to the next one, and then we'll be done. It is honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. What that means is when you're in the middle of an argument with a fool, you might as well just stop and walk away. Because, because you're not going to talk sense into a foolish person. Now, the reason this was just so meaningful to me is that just in the last couple of weeks, outside of all of church life, uh, I've had just some interactions, and I want to be careful at how I describe this because I don't want to embarrass someone. It's nobody here. It's nobody even within the circle of our relationships here. It's just on a personal basis. I've had to have some interactions with a person who refuses to see his problems. Now, that's a fool. Now, it's not that I'm perfect or that I, I, I function perfectly because God knows. I could, I could bring up my wife and she would be happy to testify for me that, that I have, on more than one occasion, have been probably the fool myself. But in this particular instance, it probably doesn't lay as much with me as another. And, and, and that is irritating. It is irritating when you want things to be right because of the, the situation, but, but it's just you can't be right because it's, you're dealing with the fool. 
some years ago, uh, we had a, a severe fracture with another minister couple. And uh, as we tried to interact and untangle this, uh, they, just, they just never saw the problem. Never saw the problem. Listen, you can't reconcile with someone who doesn't see the problem. I'll say it again. You can't reconcile with someone who doesn't see the problem. You can want it. You can desire it. You can chase after it. You can beg for it. But if, if they don't see the problem, you're, gonna be, you're going to be connecting again on a, on a basis that's going to leave you wide open for another big wound. All right? So, so that's why this is so important, of recognizing that there is a problem. Now listen, that is not, that is not releasing you from your part of the problem. Can I just say this? I have dealt with relational bumps in people's lives. We've, we've navigated our own. Being a pastor, you would assume after 27 years, I've probably visited with quite a number of couples and people who have been alienated and fractured in their relationship. And I'll just say it out loud. It is never 100% somebody's fault. Never. Now, it may be 90-10, but it's never 100. And here's the key. Whether or not the one person is carrying the vast majority of the responsibility and the problem, you still got to deal with yours. Are you following me? Just because you're less than his or he's less than yours, it doesn't mean that you're abdicated from dealing with it. If you don't recognize you got 10% of the problem, then you're foolish too. So that's why it's so important to be transparent. And it's so important to be honest. It doesn't mean you carry the whole burden of a breakdown, but it does mean you got to carry your part of it. you got to recognize here there's a problem. I spent a lot of time with that because a lot of times it's easy to identify. Even Jesus said it's easy to pick a speck out of your brother, but you can't see the log in your own eye. Even Jesus said that. He said it's easy for us to look at everyone else's shortcomings, and oftentimes we let ourselves off the hook. So recognize there's a problem. Number two, got to review the breakdown. Now, this is painful because you got to go back and you got to unearth some things. Now, again, if you're following what I said last week, hopefully you're not letting three, four, ten years go by and then you're unearthing it. I mean, if you're functioning under the four-day rule, this should be relatively easy and your mind has not had opportunity to embellish, to enlarge, to forget, to add, to subtract. Because sometimes when we go beyond an event because of our feelings, we begin to hear things inside of us that were never said externally. So, so you got to review the breakdown, but it needs to happen, I think, relatively quickly. Because if you neglect this, there's always going to be an undercurrent of distance. Now, listen to me. You can forgive somebody without reviewing the breakdown. But you can't reconcile unless you review the breakdown. You see, if there's a pothole in the road... It does you no good to ignore the location if you have to drive down that road again. And if you're in a relationship and you hit a pothole on your journey, it does you no good to not talk about the pothole because I'll assure you in that journey of relationship, you'll be down that street again. So you you got to review where the car was broke at. Where's this relationship broke at? And, and if we can find out where it was broke, we're either going to find a different street to drive down or we're going to get somebody out there to repair the pothole. Review the breakdown. Number three. You've got to repent 
of all, and I capitalize that, all wrongdoing. Now, a lot of these concepts we will review again if you come to encounter. You'll review these things again with us because they're very, very important. Repentance, I think, is a linchpin in people's victorious spiritual life. We live in a repentance-less age. We have people making decisions without repentance. We have people making commitments with no repentance. They wonder why they, they, they supposedly gave their heart to Jesus Christ. They walk away from altars. They go about their life, whether it's walking with God or walking with other people. It doesn't seem to be working. And I'm telling you, on many occasions, it's because they were never taught or told or exposed to the concepts of repentance. Repentance is key. And listen, I'm not going to get pulled into the argument, the old the old uh, ordo salutis argument about which, which side of salvation does repentance happen on. Does repentance happen before you're saved or does repentance happen right after you're saved? I'm not going to get pulled into that. Repentance happens. You're going to get all wound up in that argument. You're just dodging repentance. Repentance. What does it mean? Repentance means, post it guys, repentance means to change one's mind which leads to a change of action. To change one's mind, which leads to a change of action. That's why both Jesus and John the Baptist looked at the religious system and even the people at large, and they would say these words, show forth the fruits of repentance. Why would he say that? Why would he underscore that? It's because repentance isn't just something that happens in one's heart or mind. It certainly, it certainly begins there. But it manifests or it translates into some form of, of walking it out. Some form of demonstration. Change of action. Listen, that's why, for example, when there's a relational breakdown. Again, friends, marriages, families. When, when there's a relational breakdown, certainly people need to say, I'm sorry. Because that's a part of admission of wrongdoing. I'm sorry. But here's the problem, and all of you know this intuitively. It gets old when somebody who keeps harming the relationship keeps saying they're sorry, but things never change. Right? Sure. It's like, what does that mean anymore? You say you're sorry, but what does that mean? It didn't mean anything the last 50 times. So, so all of us intuitively know, and I think most people, if they're magnanimous and have any compassion or mercy most of us will embrace and i'm sorry but but and i'm sorry includes some fruit of repentance in fact i believe because the bible teaches it i believe it's in second corinthians 7 it says that that godly sorrow uh leadeth uh, godly sorrow uh, bringeth forth repentance which leadeth to salvation and and i honestly believe that that there ought to be tears sometimes that can be seen that, that show that there's an inner culpability, there's an inner, there's an inner acceptance. You know, I didn't, I didn't do right in this particular situation. Now, the reason I spend time with this, and it seems almost elementary, is because we live in an era of incomplete repentance. It's an, it's an era. Now, I'm, I, I don't know if it's the preacher's fault. I'm not trying to fault someone, but I'm just saying that, that people's lives 
they'll say, I don't get it. I'm, I'm, I'm loving Jesus, serving Jesus, and it's not working like the book says, or at least what I'm being preached to, if they're being preached the whole counsel of God. And, and it's just not working. It's not working here. It's not working there. Why isn't it working? It could be there's incomplete repentance. In other words, you've never entered into the full sense of repentance. You see, there's a difference. There's a difference, for instance, between I'm sorry because I was caught. And I'm sorry because I've disappointed God and man. There's a difference. You catch somebody in a problem, everybody's sorry. They're sorry they were caught. The question is, and you see, if that's where the sorry's left, and, and, and sometimes people get caught, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, yeah, I'll do better, I'll do better, I promise I'll do better, and they'll do all those sorts of things. But listen, th- there can be incomplete repentance there until they're brought to the understanding that it's not just a matter of you were caught, it's not just a matter that you may be going to jail, it's not just a matter that things aren't going to be good in your life anymore, it's because you have alienated God. Does that bother you? Well, it doesn't bother most of us because he's no longer here in flesh and blood, just by his spirit. And so that's why currently in our church world, it's easy to gather a crowd by preaching just the nice, neat blessing passages, but even the blessing passages aren't working anymore. And then we think that the whole thing is just like Scrooge, bah humbug. But we've not realized that the foundations of our lives have not been established right. We've not really turned both inwardly and outwardly from all that grieves God and man. It works the same way with husbands and wives and relationships. If you're doing something that's aggravating the fire out of your spouse and you refuse to turn from it, how many of you know it's going to be a bouncy 60 years with them? So well, what do you mean 60 years? I mean you made a covenant. So you got to repent of all wrongdoing. Number four, you got to refuse to get even. We're talking about reconciling. Yeah, that's, that's good. I'm hearing it out there right now. I'm hearing, letting that just sink in for a minute. You know, you know, pastor, she really hurt me, so I'm going to really hurt her. She needs to know, or he needs to know, what I've been feeling. It's not fair that he doesn't know what I felt like. It's not fair that she doesn't know what I I felt like. We have a family member who, uh, who years ago went through a divorce with her husband, and uh, they were able uh, to reconcile through that. It was, it was the woman's fault on this particular occasion. Uh, she had gotten snared in an unrighteous relationship and came out of it and was able to reconcile with her husband. But the problem was the husband, who was wounded by it all, decided, well, it was time she felt what he had to feel. It's time she was embarrassed like he was embarrassed. It was time she knew what he had gone through. You see, there's this thing inside of all of us that really doesn't believe God can handle the justice part. See, we really believe that people are getting away with things if we forgive them. We really believe that if I forgive them, they're going to get away with it. And, you know, they can't get away with it. And so somehow or another, there needs to be an, 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 an equalization of the scales. 
Listen, if you're going to reconcile, the fact of the matter is you're going to have to choose to destroy the scorecard. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, right before he talks about manners, he says, love does not count all wrongdoings. I I mean, you can't. If you love somebody, and if we're going to keep a scorecard, we're in trouble. Because all of us can keep scorecards of what the other person isn't doing right. That's not easy, is it, to burn the scorecard? But that's a part of a reconciling process, is that you've got to say in this process, realizing after you recognize there's a problem, and after you've reviewed the breakdown, and after there's true repentance in all that has taken place, then you can begin to say, I'm not getting even. We need to reconcile. What's done is done. We now need to get back to square one. A refusal to get even. That's not easy, is it? Number five. You have to release the sense of obligation. When you are hurt, when you're alienated and wounded, oftentimes you feel like you're owed something. You know, sometimes people, in fact, in this economy, they get fired and they say to themselves, my boss owes me, he owes me for what what he did to me after I gave him these years. Working for this company, when this company was nothing, I worked for him and I helped him raise this thing up, and now he's laid me off. Or what about, or what about I've heard this hundreds of times, or the divorce. Well, you know, I, I gave him, I gave her the best years of my life. And now they just dropped me for a newer model. I can't believe they did that. Hey, here, here's something, just take it from a guy who has watched this so many times and listened to me when I tell you this, they don't know. They might have got a new model, but they're starting all over. Oh, to be a fly on that wall with the new model. Or what about an employee? Maybe you're a businessman and you've had employees leave your service and and, and they leave at a bad time. It's not a good time. And you say to themselves, how could they leave me? Man, I gave them a job when they couldn't find a job. I opened the door for them. Or maybe you have an employee that took your clientele list and went and started the same business you're doing. They owe me something. They could have at least said, thank you. You see, the only way you can begin to reconcile is when you release the obligation that you feel like they owe you. You see, and the only way I have found that I can even begin to do that is when I realize that everything I have has come from the Lord. If the Lord has given me everything I have, then if someone takes something from me, they really didn't take it from me, they took it from Him. That's, that's the only way I can get through it. That's how, that's how I can go through and, and, and embrace the passage that to owe no man anything. Now, I I don't like it when that happens. I'm not saying it's right when it happens, and I'm not saying they do right when things like that happen, but that's how you get through it, is that it's all the Lord's. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's nothing I can do about it, and I'm not going to live under bitterness, and if I want this thing to be reconciled, then that's going to be a piece of the equation. I have to release all obligation. Now, up to this point, before I get to these last two, up to this point, There's been some difficult moments with regards to acknowledging the problem, reviewing the breakdown, repentance of everything that took place, the refusal to get even, releasing the sense of of obligation. And when you're in a a relationship, 
as I was looking at my list as it was being created, I thought to myself, well, boy, there's a lot of expectation, especially on the one that perhaps isn't as culpable in the fracture as the other one is. In other words, it sure seems like if I'm more or less the innocent party in this fracture, it seems like there's a whole lot that's expected of me. And is there anything expected of the other person? And here's where we get to the last two things. And these are critically, listen to me, critically important. Maybe the most important two things in the whole list. Number six is restitution. Restitution. Now this isn't preached much anymore. I don't know how long it's been since I've heard a message on restitution. I can remember years ago growing up in the old holiness movement, uh, and I was probably in my late teens, early 20s, I heard a message on restitution. But I don't know that I can say within the last several decades I even heard a message on this subject. Again, the reason we don't hear anything about restitution anymore is because we have taught a total misunderstanding of grace. We think grace means we're excused and every obligation you may think you have is suddenly gone. That's not exactly grace. You see, this, this concept of restitution is actually a very biblical con- uh, concept. It's when you begin to make right that what, which you have failed at. You're making right that which you failed at. Now, hear me. Salvation is full and free. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. But having said that, that doesn't mean you're exonerated for, from making things right from that which you've received freely. Are you following me? It doesn't mean that that causes you to be saved by doing it, but it causes you to bear fruits, so to speak, of repentance and what has really gone on in your heart and life. It's, I was just thinking years ago, some of you that have, that have followed the Lord for many, many years may, re- may remember how you would hear stories like this. Years ago, you heard of people who got saved. Now, this is not true. People would get saved, and then they would go home and pull out all the stolen items they had in their garage and go take it back to the person they stole it from. I don't know about you. I used to hear those stories a lot. I mean, they got, how did you know they were saved? Well, they went home and opened their garage and started taking back everything that they had ever stolen. In our current era, we just consider that was God enlarging us. You could be a drug dealer for years and have millions of dollars in a bank account in the Caymans and get saved and, 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 and you just live on the, on the TBN Christian talk circuit with millions in your Cayman account from drug dealing giving glory to God. And I'm just simply saying... Really? Really? I remember when people would get saved and they would go home and nobody taught them this. They didn't have enough time to get taught this. It was just something that the Holy Spirit was doing in them. They'd go home, pull out some, uh, uh, some letterhead, and they'd start writing letters of apology. I'm sorry. For what I did. I mean, they just do these things. I remember hearing just recently about the guy who years ago, I don't know what department store it was at, Macy's or Sears, was it Sears? And he stole $20 from a cash register about 40 years ago. And all of a sudden, he showed up at a Sears with a $100 bill. And, and he said, I, I stole this 
money. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know if he got saved, converted. I don't know if his conscience just finally got to him. I don't know. But it made the front page of the AOL homepage. Because who could imagine somebody after 40 years paying back not only the 20, but the interest that that $20. It's just a weird story to the world. We don't hear that anymore, do we? But can I just suggest that when you hear something like that, for me, I'm beginning to say, well, maybe they got the real deal. It's in Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. If you ever wonder where this is found, it's in Luke chapter 19. Of course, there are some Old Testament passages with regards to restitution as well, about when a thief gets caught, he must return fourfold, etc. But, but in Luke 19 is the story of Zacchaeus, you know, and, and it's the story we used to sing to our kids in kids' church, you know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. You know, you know, you know some of you know the story. And he climbed up into the sycamore tree, and Jesus was coming through town, and Jesus spots him and says, I'm going to eat lunch at your house. So he goes to the house of Zacchaeus. Obviously, something uh, divine and impactful happened to Zacchaeus. And suddenly, after being in the presence of Jesus, he says something to the effect, Lord, because he was was a a tax collector. He was a shyster tax collector. He He was getting money under the table by charging too much tax, paying their taxes, but keeping his own money. And this is what he said to Jesus. He said, he said, I'm going to give, uh, basically I'm giving fourfold back in restoration. So in other words, whatever I've stolen, I'm going to give back four times what I stole. And he said, then I'm going to give half of everything I own to the poor. And Jesus remarks when he hears this, he says these words. He says, truly salvation has come to this house. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, think about this for just a second. If Zacchaeus would have given his heart to the Lord, let's just say, and he walked into the town and he just looked at everybody and he said, I've been saved. I am now a saved tax collector. And he just And he just walked. Now, this was without doing any of this other stuff. Let's say he didn't do any of this stuff. And he just said, I'm a saved tax collector. And and now we're going to do things right. How many of you know everybody in town would still be going? I don't know. But in like manner, how many of you know that because he did this, everybody in town that saw this or received back from him that which had been stolen, how many of you know that he gained his credibility back? I suspect rapidly in that city. See, that's why restitution, I think, has a place in all our lives. Restitution isn't punitive, but it's the fruit of a changed heart. Why should people trust you again based solely on your word when you've lied for years? Interesting, isn't it? Or what happens when you said you were sorry and you were going to follow through, but you never followed through on previous occasions? See, that's what we want. We want everybody just to take us at our word. But this is the platform from which you can build trust and credibility. And I believe this is the precept that God tells us here. He's saying this. If you've got to dig yourself out of a hole, you won't get in as many holes. Amen. I've often said, I've told Trace this on occasion, I said, when people make messes, if you let them clean up their own messes, well, they won't make messes there anymore. Because no one likes to clean up a mess. 
Nobody likes to do it. How, how do you keep from doing it? Because if I told you here today that if, you, if, it, if to be right with God, that it would take restoring fourfold of everything you were stolen, give half your goods to the poor. Let me just tell you something. I ain't stealing. If I took that serious, that's what happens when relationships are fractured. Because oftentimes, people will look And they'll begin to say, hey, hey, I said I was sorry. Listen, I'm glad you're sorry, and I believe you're sorry. I'm not saying I don't believe what you said, and I don't believe your heart's not right. But my problem is, is that there's been a lot of things that have been fractured along the way that are going to have to be repaired for me to really embrace that like you would have it. Because I've heard words before. Now I want to see a little fruit to this thing, which tags on to very closely number seven, and this is it is the redevelopment of trust. Both of these things are very closely related. And this is the risky part. Because if you want to be reconciled to someone, I want everyone to hear me now. Everybody has to start developing trust. When trust exists, see, there's a lot of liberty. There's a lot of grace when there's trust. Isn't that true? Because if you trust somebody you will tend to think the best first. If you don't trust somebody, you'll tend to be skeptical first. Right? So you want trust. You want trust in a relationship because everybody wants trust. Nobody likes, nobody likes living under a cloud of suspicion all the time. Nobody wants the other person to always jump to conclusions with regards to everything they're doing. But listen, when trust is broken, it is a difficult atmosphere, and in some ways it should be a difficult atmosphere. See, when you enter into a new relationship, you can bestow trust almost instantly. This is new. I'm going to believe the best. This is how we're going to get started. I'm not going to saddle you with all of my baggage. You're a new person. I'm not going to make you jump through the same hoops. I'm not going to make you do the same things. I know other people have burned me, but this is a new relationship. And so I'm just going to trust because you know what? That's really probably what we ought to do. But if you're in a broken relationship, trust must be earned. I've seen this again for years. Guys, one week after cheating cheated on their wife and one week later you know they said i said i was sorry i said i i wouldn't do it again i said this and 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 why won't she trust me well you a brick reason she won't trust you is because you broke trust well i don't understand she ought to she just doesn't trust me good Because the way of a transgressor, the scripture says, is hard. Not forever, but there will be a time period. Now listen, listen, but here's the key. Now let's just use that same analogy to ladies. Ladies, you've got to begin to let that trust be redeveloped because it can't be 20 years past the infraction and you still aren't going to let him out of eye or earshot. Are you following me? Because, Because that's not godly either. You say, well, how long should that take? Well, you know what? That probably is when you bring in counseling and you bring in some sense of accountability and you bring in some sense of fairness to the equation. There are going to be boundaries. And probably if if those boundaries were broken, those boundaries are going to have to be in place 
for a long time in order to reestablish the disciplines that are necessary in order to make that relationship work. Are you following me? Trust has to be redeveloped. That's why when you go, I'm just simple things, that's why when you go into a restaurant and you have a bad meal and you've been going to this restaurant for years and you say to the restaurant owner, you know, that's, uh, you're not yelling or screaming, you're just saying, I wish this could have been a better you know, meal or whatever, it, however you, you kindly make that information known, a lot of times a restaurant will say, here, then maybe the next one's on me. And why does that make it better in your life? It's because there's some form of restitution that took place. There's something that's being said there that they don't want to break the trust you have. You, you see what I'm saying? We do these in other areas of life. The question is, will we begin to do this in our relational areas of life? And can I just say at this point that if somebody refuses to go through restitution processes and redeveloping of trust, then you know what? Here's where I'm at. I'm at the place now, and again, don't take the words I say generally by way of pulpit preaching or teaching and then apply them specifically, and then you get to violate Scripture because sometimes before you run out and divorce or you run out or you run out and do something that, that you know, you've just been waiting to hear one line from me that gives you the okay to do this without hearing the whole thing. Because I can't preach the whole thing at once. You may want to bounce that off, uh, me or someone else. I'm just simply saying, though, in general terms, that in a relationship, when people refuse to enter into these things, it's going to be hard, if not impossible to put that relationship back together again. And that's why I say, and it may not need to be put together again. Because all you're putting together again is another opportunity for a wounded heart. The saddest thing I have found in our life through the years is when folks you have been friends with or folks you had relationship with for whatever reason. And sometimes this is the hard part. Sometimes we don't even know, even though we try, to find out where in the world this went sideways. But they just decide to eject from the relationship. Listen to me. Some people that eject from your life, you just need to let go. It may be God's gracious hand just sparing you the moment when you have to force them out of your life. Sometimes when they eject, it's really the hand of God saying, you really didn't need that in your life anyway. I was reading, I have this in my desk. It's a, uh, it's, it's, I don't know what you would call it, uh, uh, a recitation of some sort from T.D. Jakes. And again, it's one of those things that you have to hear the whole context to, but every now and then it just it ministers to me. And I'm going to read it to you, and we're going to wrap it up with this. But uh, I found this when I was going through a time a number of years back when some significant people in my life refused to reconcile. Understand, I, I was reaching out. I, was, I really was doing all I could to reconcile. But when they won't acknowledge the problem, you following me? When there's no sense that, that they had any wrong part in it. I mean, I could go down the list. What do you do? What do you do? This is what T.D. said. He said, there are people who can walk away from you. And hear me when I tell you this. When people can walk away from you, let them walk. I don't want you to try to talk another person into staying with you, loving you, calling you, caring about you, 
coming to see you, staying attached to you. I mean, hang up the phone. When people can walk away from you, let them walk. Your destiny is never tied to anyone that left. The Bible said that they came out from us, that it might be made manifest that they were not of us. For had they been of us, no doubt they would have continued with us. People leave you because they're not joined to you. And if they're not joined to you, you can't make them stay. So let them go. It doesn't mean that they're a bad person. It just means that their part in the story is over. And you've got to know when people's part in your story is over so that you don't keep trying to raise the dead. You've got to know when it's dead. You've got to know when it's over. Let me tell you something. I've got the gift of goodbye. It's the 10th spiritual gift. I believe in goodbye. It's not that I'm hateful. It's that I'm faithful. And I know whatever God means for me to have, he'll give it to me. And if it takes too much sweat, then I don't need it. So stop begging people to stay. Let them go. If you're holding on to something that doesn't belong to you and was never intended for your life, then you need to let it go. If you're holding on to past hurts and past pains, then let it go. If someone can't treat you right, love you back, and see your worth, let it go. If someone has angered you, let it go. If you're holding on to some thoughts of evil and revenge, let it go. If you're involved in a wrong relationship or addiction, let it go. If you're holding on to a job that no longer meets your needs or talents, let it go. If you have a bad attitude, let it go. You keep judging others to make yourself feel better. Let it go. If you're stuck in the past and God is trying to take you to a new level in Him, then let it go. If you're struggling with the healing of a broken relationship, let it go. If you keep trying to help someone who won't even try to help themselves, let it go. And if you're feeling depressed and stressed, let it go. There's a particular situation that you are so used to handling yourself and God is saying, take your hands off of it, then you need to let it go. Let the past be the past. Forget the former things. God's going to do a new thing in 2012. So let it go. Let it go. Amen. Amen. We're not, we're not to... January 1st yet, but this is a good Sunday to do it, so why don't you stand with me, please?